Welcome back to The Melancholy Condition. I am your host, Darius Velasquez, and you're listening to Season 3. Enjoy. Here's an ad. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show into all the apps that people like to listen? How do I make money from podcasts? The answer to every single one of these questions is pretty simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. And best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. And that means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. The reason why I love Anchor is just because it's easy. It's simple. It's on my phone. I don't use any exterior hardware. I don't got to do anything really, but just pick up my phone, open the Anchor app, press record, invite my guests, and boom, you have the melancholy condition. So if you want to start your podcast, do so today. Go to anchor.fm. Countdown, and cool. we'll get started. So three, two, one, and we are live. Welcome back to the very first episode of the Melancholy Condition for Season 3. Josh, go ahead and introduce yourself. Well, hello everybody who's listening. My name is Joshua Shea. I am a former award-winning journalist, and I now work as an uh, author and educator trying to share the message of porn addiction with the world and just how uh, dangerous it may be if we don't start dealing with it soon. Awesome, awesome. I'm glad you're here. And also, another um, little bit of a tidbit, this is the first episode of the third season that I've been working on, so that feels pretty good to be back. I think the last season around, we only did about 17 episodes in this season we're probably looking more north of 80 so that's going to be fun i'm really excited to hear everything that you have to say and how you have to share um so you did tell me off air that you just finished a book right yeah i uh well i finished it a while ago it takes forever to get a book published these days if you're not <laughs> if you're not self-publishing i'm mm-hmm. I'm, one, I'm one of those people who still likes to go with an old school publisher because i think they know what they're doing yeah um, and uh so my book was actually just released uh at the very beginning here of december and uh it's called he's a porn addict now what uh, a expert and a former porn addict answer your questions. I play the part of the former porn addict as I uh, had a porn addiction for 20, 25 years. And I teamed up with a fantastic licensed marriage and family therapist out of California named Tony Overbay. And uh, he's got all the schooling. He's dealt with over a thousand couples in uh, therapy and counseling And basically what we decided to do was to try to give uh, partners who were generally women of pornography addicts uh, the 411 on what to expect when it comes out that he's a pornography addict. Whether you've discovered it or he self-disclosed it, there's 101 questions anywhere from, you know, is this my fault that I caused him to become this way through how do we get him help? through, you know, 
it's possible to come out of this on the other side uh, still married and possibly happy. So we try, we answer uh, 60, 65 of the most frequently asked questions from women. And I think that giving it uh, the expert's opinion and giving it the former addict's experience that we cover bases in a way that no other book out there does for the partners of porn addicts. And it's available on Amazon now. Nice. Nice. Now you did say this was your second book. So what out of curiosity was the first book? The first book I uh, had published in January, 2018. So it's about two years old now. And that is uh, a memoir I wrote that really details the last four or five years of my descent into pornography addiction and alcoholism. Uh, I was running a local magazine here in central Maine um, and it was starting to go bad. And the book basically uh, follows how the magazine started and exploded and was very popular. Then how things started turning. And when things started turning, you know, my addictions really picked up. Um, it was pretty bad. And it talks about how, you know, I eventually crashed. That's crazy. It's this is still like, excuse me, if um, I take a while to respond to certain things, this is actually the first time that I've act, like had to talk over this kind of topic or this subject. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, a lot of the times. And most people, most people, you know, have. To talk about it because it's going to be a healthcare crisis in 15, 20 years if we don't start talking about it. So please take your time because, you know, 99% of the people who are listening probably are in the exact same boat as you. So um, that's a pretty good uh, perspective to have on it. Um, you know, there was a question. It just skipped my mind. Okay. So with typically, the people that I bring onto the show, um, a lot of them will have, you know, their experiences with whatever it is that they're struggling with, mental health, um, and th kind of things that can come up. Um, of course, like an addiction does definitely count as one uh, that is a roadblock to something in their life, or it could have easily been a catalyst, you know, to something in their life. So you started to explain a little bit on air. Um, or off air whenever we were talking on the phone about a little bit of where you believe this kind of stemmed from. Yeah. Um, is this something that's in your book that you're able to talk about? Yeah. Yeah. Without it's, like it's, kind of giving out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Sure. No, I, I talk at length in my first book about my personal story. The second book is really more about the partners and what they're going through, but yeah, no, I don't have a problem sharing my story. Um, you know, my my addiction story is not very different from a lot of people's. Um, it begins with some serious trauma. Um, when I was a child, three, four, five years old, um, I was babysat by a woman during the day. And uh, it was a very abusive environment. There was uh, a lot of mental abuse. There was a fair amount of physical abuse. And there was actually uh, sexual abuse. Um, and, you know, having to experience that at a very young age, I had to develop my survival skills. I had developed my coping mechanisms and really my survival skills came down to the idea that just survive to the next day. That's all that you have to do. 
you have to say whatever you need to say, do whatever you need to do. You know, it doesn't matter, you know, lie, cheat, steal, whatever it is, manipulate, just survive mm-hmm. to the next day. And while those may be acceptable coping skills for a four or five year old boy, they're not acceptable coping skills for a 34 or 35 year old man. But mine never evolved because of that trauma that happened. Um, the first time I ever saw hardcore pornography, I was about 11 years old. Um, a cousin mm-hmm. of a cousin of mine showed me a few uh, adult magazines, uh, Penthouse and uh, Hustler, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I knew immediately that I had found something special. Uh, this wasn't just, oh, my gosh, look at those naked people. This was mm-hmm. like, you know, a light shine down from above saying, this is something that is going to make you feel better in life. This is something that is going to take the pain away. Uh, the only other time that I've ever felt this way was about three years later when I was at a wedding and I was able to sneak probably 12 glasses of champagne. It was the, <laughs> it was the first time that I ever got drunk. Um, and, and, but it was the exact same thing. When people tell me porn addiction isn't real, I, you know, I tell them, I felt the exact same way when I got drunk for the first time that I felt when I saw hardcore pornography for the first time. I was literally addicted to both the first time I tried them. And, you know, coming, coming. Can I ask you something yeah, real quick? Yeah, absolutely. How, how old were you whenever all this was happening? I was, I was 11, maybe 12 for the hardcore pornography. And I was probably 13, maybe 14 with the alcohol. Um, mm-hmm. And by the time that I was 15 years old, I had found a video. This is the late 80s. You know, yeah. I had I had found a video store that would rent me adult movies. And I had found a convenience store near that video store that would sell me beer. So pretty much when I was uh, starting my freshman, sophomore year in high school, after school, I would ride my bike go buy a couple beers and then go to the video store. And then I'd go home. And before my parents got home from work, I'd drink two beers and watch an adult film. And then after they went to bed, I'd have another beer and watch another movie. And that was pretty much my life for a long time. And I hid it from everybody. Um, But, you know, the other, and the other thing is, you know, I was a popular kid. I was a good student. I was involved Mm. in activities. You know, I, I was not the kid you, might stereotypically think was doing this you know nobody had an idea because i was an overachiever by all 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 senses and i really continued that life up into my 20s i was lucky enough when i was 18 19 to get a job at the local newspaper um, Mm -hmm. as a as a writer so i didn't go off to college for four years because to get the job that i already wanted so i i started professionally very young And I worked as a journalist at various newspapers and magazines for the next 10, 12 years. I ended up meeting a fantastic woman. We got married, you know, had kids. But during all of this, I kept these two addictions very hidden. Now, there were times where they got worse when I was more stressed out, when I had, you know, more things to deal with. And there were times where things were okay, and I didn't lean on them as much. But the addictions were always there. And uh, then when I was in my mid 30s, probably 34, I think um, I decided, despite the fact that it was the 
worst economy in America at the time. This was 2008. I decided I was going to start my own uh, magazine here in central Maine, a lifestyle magazine, the kind of thing that covers arts, entertainment, dining, nightlife, all all that Mm -hmm. stuff. And uh, it was an overnight success. I had a five-year business plan and I met it within four months, Um, which is, which is a good problem to have, but it's still a problem. And, and I, you know, I'm a good businessman when you throw a ton of money at me because, (laughs) because I, I, I am able to hide my, my faults that way. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, and and I kind of built up an ego. I, you know, I'm a little bit, my narcissist side came out. Um, I launched a film festival that turned to gold right away and became one of the most popular in Northern New England. And, you know, celebrities would come to it and we got a ton of media exposure and then probably, and then I think it was uh, 2011 when, you know, I said to myself, what does this area need more of? Well, it needs more of me. So I ran for mm-hmm. city council and was a city councilor in, in my town till 2013. Uh, however, in 2012, I started to know, this was about four years after the magazine started. I noticed that our revenues were plateauing and starting to decline for the first time ever uh, because we were no longer the new hip thing in town. We'd been around long enough that people, people had advertised three, four years with us. And some of them realized that they got a better bang for their buck elsewhere, maybe on radio, maybe in the newspaper. So they stopped advertising with us and new companies were not quite uh, coming into existence as quickly as we needed them to. So uh, our expenses kept rising, but the money coming in didn't. And me not being a good business person, I kind of freaked out a little because I could see we might have six to 12 months left if something mm-hmm. didn't, if something didn't turn around. So I'm in, this is, this is the point where the story really turns. I made the absolutely horrible, horrible decision to pull myself off of my bipolar medication. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'd been on bipolar meds since I was about 25. So we're talking, you know, about 12 years at this point a little more than a decade yeah yeah, yeah and, Here, and, give me one second sure before before we dive into that i have a couple questions sure. i just don't want to forget about them yeah absolutely so um whenever you know these addictions they first started coming into fruition right you explained it as almost like a golden nugget right yeah to, it was the new thing that you had now i was i'm curious if um so a lot of people that I know that have an addiction, regardless of what it is, right? There's always some sort of, whether it be past trauma or childhood trauma, something that comes around that kind of influences that, right? And so I guess what my question is, is do you think that finding this new thing is like... <clears throat> how do I put it in better words? Did you feel that it was like the new secret, almost like something that you could, regardless of what you were projected as to everyone else that met you, this was your own like little thing that kind of felt like, okay, it's okay that I do have a secret that I can't really tell anybody about. You know what I'm saying? So yeah, I'm I do. I, indulge I do. in these things because you're you're younger. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, I mean, and obviously, you know, my my parents uh, were very strict uh, Christian people 
who, you know, uh, would have freaked out if they thought that I was looking at a dirty magazine or, you know, a dirty video. And my parents also, three of my four uh, grandparents were alcoholics. So we never had a drop of alcohol in my house when I was growing up. So I was taught that both pornography and alcohol were very bad things. But after trying them for the first time and feeling so great, you know, it was it was one of these things where it's like I found a way to self-soothe. I don't think at 12 years old or 13 years old, I knew what I was even self-soothing from. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I didn't recognize there was trauma there at the time. And I, I was already, you know, starting to suppress a lot of the but this stuff hit me in a way that nothing else ever did and i'll tell you it's uh depending on what study you look at roughly 90 percent of people who develop addiction and any kind of addiction uh, have some kind of uh trauma in their past that is unresolved um you know addiction is really just a symptom of that trauma being unresolved and and that was you know ultimately later on when I went into recovery that's what that's what I didn't know I was running from I didn't know I needed coping from I didn't know you know why this stuff was hitting me so perfectly I just knew that it made me feel like nothing else on earth it took away all my fear it took away all my problems I just felt like I was on top of the world. So with the second um, question that I had, um, this, whenever all this was kind of falling out into place, this was around a time period where it was almost, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was almost taboo to kind of talk about it, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, and, and I still think it is to a large degree, but yeah, everybody pretended that pornography. Um, Lower of people pornography because it wasn't as easily accessible as it is today. But yeah, nobody talked about that. Nobody wanted to admit that ever. You know, even a Playboy, nobody wanted to admit that they looked at. And uh, uh-huh. you know, it was it was one of these things where it was taboo. You know, especially the pornography part of it. But as a 15, 16 year old, you know, my friends might look at pornography, and I, I was with some friends where someone would throw in a tape, and everybody's you know cracking on it and making jokes. And that's mm-hmm. not really the way that I used it. Or I'd go to a high school party and everybody's drinking there socially. And that's not the way that I drank. Um, yeah, you know, I didn't drink that. I, I didn't drink at high school parties because I wanted to drink by myself. And I wanted to pound at that point, you know, five or six in a row and just mm-hmm. be left alone because that made me feel better. So at, when I was in high school, I could recognize that I was using these substances of porn and alcohol differently than the people around me. Oh, huh. Interesting. All right. So <clears throat> let's dial back over to whenever you uh, had stopped taking your bipolar medication. Yeah. I think that what I really did was I romanticized the way that I felt in my early 20s. Uh, you know, I remembered that I felt like I was far more creative when I wasn't on the pills. I had the ability to sleep a couple hours less when I wasn't on the pills because manic was my normal. I was very rarely depressed. Um, mm-hmm. I was just usually manic. And I thought if I could tap into that mania, I might be able to figure out a way to save this magazine that I loved so much. 
And unfortunately, after a couple of weeks of not being on the medication, it got out of my system. And the only way that I could deal or kind of be balanced or level was to have my addictions explode. And instead mm -hmm. of I, I would only drink usually late at night. Um, after everybody had gone to bed at my house, my wife and my two kids, or I might have a beer here and there, a networking event um, for the for the magazine. But I started drinking in the morning before I went to work. I would always have a beer or two with lunch. And then anytime there was a, an afternoon meeting to have, I made sure that we, you know, I, I arranged to have it at a local brew pub or something so I could have a few more beers. And then mm -hmm. it, late in the evening when I used to have, you know, a, a beer or two, uh, I started drinking hard liquor for the first time in my life. I was drinking Red Bull and tequila. Uh, oh, and yeah, that's that's it's that's the that's the hard stuff. And mm -hmm. uh, I would you know, that's what I started drinking very big glasses of or multiple glasses of late at night. And on the same hand, the pornography started to explode as well. I would often look at it before I went to work. And I didn't look at it very much at work. If nobody was there, I might try to sneak a peek. But I, late at night, instead of looking at it for half an hour or an hour, as I tended to do, I started looking at it for two or three hours. And then mm -hmm. I just, it wasn't doing it for me. You know, with addiction, you constantly need to up the ante, much like yeah, I did, yeah. much like I did with the alcohol. And I made the choice to move over into chat rooms um, where it was, you know, it was, it was peer-to-peer uh, -peer cameras. And so mm -hmm. you'd, you'd click on the, uh, click on the next button and see who pops up. If you want to talk to them, talk to them. If they want to talk to you, they talk to you. If they don't like what you look like, they hit the next button. And I eventually started to talk to women on these and it didn't take me long before I started trying to get them to take their clothes off and do sexual things to themselves. And I would, you know, I, I didn't want to find a woman who would just flash me. I wanted to, mm. I wanted to find a woman who would say she wouldn't and then work on it for an hour or two and see if I could to do it because that's where I felt like I was getting my power from. Uh, so with, uh, sorry to interrupt that's you. That's okay. Um, with most, at least, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of addictions or like the the course of them, um, I I tend to look at it similar to uh, ADHD, right? So a lot of the times, um, which I learned this with the last episode of season two, uh, there was a gentleman that came on that had like a really... Um, severe case of ADHD and he kind of explained to me everything that like what's going on in your brain how your brain really doesn't release those chemicals of rewarding right like right. so whenever you accomplish something you're typically you feel rewarded from it right um that with in the within the case of ADHD um most of the time your brain doesn't reward yourself it doesn't give you that uh serotonin release so you don't feel good about the things that you're doing when with these um addictions as they were kind of um progressing or if you want to use that word uh, as they were evolving should we say for better lack of terms um do you feel like that that was how your brain was like rewarding yourself you know what i mean 
Well, it was like whenever you'd indulge in whatever it was that you were doing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I got uh, n- number one for my own safety. I wanted control. That's why I started my own companies. Um, you know, I if I could control what I was doing daily, I could control my employees. Nobody was going to tell me what to do. I created my own reality. And that was, mm-hmm. that was a big thing about the control that way. But it also was when I, you know, like I said, I, I was an overnight success with this magazine. It felt like for a period of time, everything I touched turned to gold. And that was such a rush. Like I said, my ego got inflated. You know, some of my narcissistic tendencies came out because it felt so good. I got a rush. You know, that, mm-hmm. and, and that is serotonin. It's also dopamine. Um, you know, it's also oxytocin. It's adrenaline. Um, you know, all of these different, there are, there are six brain chemicals basically that all, uh, feed into addiction and feed into the pleasure centers of your brain. And that's, you know, that's what it was, is that it, I got hooked on having these chemicals get released. And that's, that's really what all addiction is, whether you're a food addict or a gambling addict, or even a drug addict, everything that happens in the brain is exactly the same from addict. Yes, we may get you may get more of a uh, rush or a thrill gambling with the chemicals involved in drugs. There are going to be other physical effects. But for the most part, the brain chemistry through all addicts is the same. You get that reward um, in your pleasure sensors uh, by engaging in that behavior or in using that substance. It tweaks that little part of your brain that just needs. Interesting. So go ahead and carry on with your story as with um, where you left off. Yeah. So um, eventually, um, you know, I was talking to these women and it was a control thing uh, when I could get that. Because keep in mind, my magazines part and relationship with my wife and kids was not good at that point because my drinking had increased so much, um, because I was ignoring them. I wasn't sleeping very well. Uh, it was just, it was one of those times where my life was falling apart and I felt like I had so little control of my life. The only thing I could control at night was these women online. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's sick hearing me say it out loud, but that was, you know, when I could convince a woman to take off her top or do something, you know, even more sexual, I felt like I achieved something. So one of the things that I did when I was able to, when I was able to get them to do what I wanted, I would take a screen capture and, and I didn't use them for sexual gratification because I I know how the trophy. Yeah. I I know how the internet works. I can find porn. Um, I use these as trophies. These prove to me that I was worth something. Had you come into my office at the magazine, you would have seen a wall full of plaques because I needed to not show the world, but show myself that I was worthy, that I that I was good enough. And that's what these uh, trophies uh, that I collected from these women were. And, you know, this kept going for a few months. And then on the morning of March 20th. 2014 i saw uh, two cars and a van pull up to the front of my house i was sitting at my kitchen table getting some work done and you don't have to watch cop shows from the 80s to know what unmarked cars look like 
Um, mm-hmm. I knew it was the police the second they pulled up. I had no idea why they were there. I actually thought somebody had probably died. And uh, I went to the door. And as the uh, the plainclothes officer started talking, I could see that he had a search warrant in his hand. And I was able to make out enough of the words that I kind of knew what it was about. And he told me that they believed that I had uh, been online with an underage uh, girl. And I, you know, invited them in because when they have a search warrant, you have to. Um, and we sat down and we actually had a very calm conversation and they laid it out for me. And they absolutely proved that one of these women that I talked to online actually was a teenage girl. And uh, I was in such a horrible state at the time that, you know, I, I, it didn't matter to me that there were 15-year-old girls who looked like they're 25 or 25-year-old women who looked like they're 15 girls i wasn't showing any sense of uh good judgment at that point um Mm -hmm. and this is what happened and you know i just want to stress that um i don't blame my addiction for this i don't blame uh the girl for what happened i don't blame the police i only blame myself because ultimately i was the one who decided to pull myself off of my bipolar meds um yeah you know I, i knew that i had a mental health issue And I made a horrible decision regarding that mental health, and I did not take care of it. Um, So even though I got myself to a point where, you know, consequences got very blurred and I really became under the influence of my addictions, you know, I can't blame anybody but myself. This was my fault. So, you know, I try not to minimize. I try not to rationalize. I did a really horrible, heinous thing. And, uh, you know, I, I... I never fought it from day one. Um, You know, I I admitted guilt from day one because they had the proof, you know, despite the fact I might not have known at the time how old she was. That's absolutely no excuse. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about your road to recovery. What proceeded after this? Well, um, you know, it's it's not funny, but, you know, my uh, wife came and bailed me out of jail. Um, after they arrested me, I was only there about 45 minutes and we drove, we drove home and there was already a TV news van in front of my house. Uh, I was, you know, that was the moment when I realized I was a much bigger deal than I thought. Uh, Mm Um, because for the next several days, there was a lot of TV news vans there. Uh, the newspapers were here and for the next two years, anytime I appeared in court, there was always TV cameras and, and the news there. So this was something I really could never hide from. Um, yeah. But the day, the day after I was arrested, I went and saw my lawyer for the first time. And the first question he asked is, is this a sentencing game or is this a litigation game? And I said, this is a sentencing game. And he's like, okay, that's good to know. And he said, do you have any drug or alcohol problems? And I said, no, I do not. And my father and my wife, who both came to the meeting with me, said he absolutely has an alcohol problem. <laughs> and, and I just kind of shrugged. And he said, do you think you have an alcohol problem? And I said, I probably drink too much. But, you know, I don't know. He says, OK, well, we're going to get you into an alcohol treatment program. And I said, well, if that's going to look for, good for the judge, let's do it. And he stopped mm-hmm. me right. There. He said, no, 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 no. Listen, um, you may get three months in jail you may get three years in jail you may get no jail time we don't know but someday all of this legal stuff is going to be over and when it is over do you want to be the asshole that you were that really hit me 
And I mm-hmm. thought to myself, geez, that he has a point here. And I said, well, no. And he said, you need to get healthy. That's the number one thing. You've been given a gift right now. You need to get healthy. So I went off to rehab for alcoholism in Palm Springs, California. And I thought that just like in the movies, I'd be there for 28 days. And I would, you know, nod along and say, okay, because I wasn't really an alcoholic. But it only took me about a week there before I realized, oh, my God, I'm exactly who they're talking about. And Mm -hmm. instead of spending 28 days there, I spent 70 days there. Um, During my last couple weeks there, my caseworker had me meet with a colleague of theirs, who was a certified sex addiction therapist. And this was the first time that I started dealing with some of those memories that were coming up from when I was a little kid and started figuring out what they were about and and remembering what they were, which was very difficult. And it was also the first time that I, I considered the fact that I had a porn addiction. I straight through my arrest, straight through most of rehab, I blamed the pornography as bad choices because of the alcohol and this uh, sex addiction therapist really made me recognize that I had a second addiction. It was to pornography and it actually had been there longer than my addiction to alcohol had been. So that really opened up my eyes. Uh, When I came back home to Maine, I spent hundreds of hours in very deep one-on-one therapy looking at that trauma, figuring out what happened. And after after about six, seven months of that, my uh, therapist and I, along with my lawyer, uh, all talked and decided that it would probably be best if I went to a sex and porn rehab. The summer of 2015, I spent seven weeks down uh, in Texas mm-hmm. uh, at a rehab there. And, you know, and I'll tell you, uh, both of those rehab stints were absolutely the most wonderful, amazing, transformative experiences of my life. Um, they helped me really recognize how I became the person that I did. And I think that was the key for me to get better. I, in, you know... I'm I'm almost six years uh, being sober. I have never had a relapse on alcohol or porn. And I think that's because I didn't just work at stopping the addictions. I worked at figuring out how I got to be the way I was. And Mm. in, in doing that, I actually found it a lot easier to not use because I, I learned why I used and I adapted the tools and developed the tools to address those earlier issues, which made dealing with the addictions that much easier. So with, it's very interesting that, you know, you found the reason why these issues were coming up. Now, what, I mean, I'm sure in the beginning, you, did you ever get like urges and stuff like that? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing is, even to this day, um, I still a couple times a year have dreams where I'm drinking and, or, or I have dreams where, uh, somebody asks me if I want a beer and I say no. And then the dream fast forwards and I'm sitting there and there are like two or three empty pint glasses and I've actually mm-hmm. drank and I feel horrible because somehow I forgot that I'm not supposed to drink. And I, I, you know, and, and that, 
that's kind of the telltale sign of being an addict um, or that you did have an addiction if you're still dreaming about it this long afterwards. Um, Mm -hmm. With the pornography, I had to go through a a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, to kind of rewire my brain when it came to how I looked at women, how I considered women, some of my attitudes towards sexuality. Um, You know, I really had to take it day by day. And it it was very difficult in the beginning. You know, I had to do a lot of little things like take out HBO and Cinemax and that kind of stuff uh, from my house. And, you know, I didn't put filters on my computer because I'm smart enough to get around them. Uh, What I did was I found a web browser that had no uh, incognito mode. And Mm -hmm. I allowed, you know, my wife to look at them whenever she wanted. Um, Another thing that really helped with me is that kind of keep you accountable. Yeah, exactly. And one of the other things that really helped keep me accountable, which unfortunately or, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, a lot of people don't have is I had the law when I was out on bail. I was not allowed to look at porn or drink. Now, could I have? Yeah, and I, I could have done it a million times, but I didn't because there was always that specter of the law on my shoulder. And then mm-hmm. when I got out of jail, I, I, I served six months in jail. Um, when I got out, I was on probation for a couple of years. And at any time, they could come check my computer. And at any time, they could force me to take a blood test or a urine test to see if I drank. So having those little, like, uh, albatrosses on my shoulder really helped change my patterns. So after so many years of developing healthier patterns and developing a healthier mindset, um, you know, now the, now I could go to the store and buy a six pack when we're done this interview, I could go and I could pick up, you know, 15 adult DVDs, but I'm not mm. going to because that's not my routine anymore. Uh, I don't want that to be my routine. I know where that life leads me and i now have the strength to turn my back on it i just want to say that you're a pretty lucky man you have your still your first wife right yep yep she was amazing during this dude that's incredible that she stuck by you and supported you through it and helped you get through it held you accountable and then bailed you out on the first day yeah. Oh no. I, I just think that's I, I, crazy because most, I, in my experience, at least, I don't see. There's not a lot of women that would be like, "Well, you know what? I'm gonna stick around for this." Well, and I think that's because in society we don't look at pornography addiction as a sickness. You know, mm. a lot of women will stay with an alcoholic. A lot of women will stay with a drug addict. They just want them to get better. They'll stand by their side while they get better. And the reason that I wrote this new book um, along with this therapist was to say, this guy is sick. This doesn't mean you have to stay. This doesn't mean you have to put up with any of his crap, but this is an illness. So before, before you do anything immediately, just take a step back and understand that he's sick. Understand that the pornography is not about replacing you. The pornography uh, is not because you're not, doing something you know i was a porn addict for 12 years before i ever got married Mm -hmm. you know she had nothing to do with it i came into i came into the relationship with this you know one one of the common questions women have is how did i ever miss this and it's like i I had 12 years to perfect hiding it 
I was perfect at hiding it by the time I met her. Um, I hid it from girlfriends. I hid it from roommates. I could hide it from anybody. Um, you know, I, I was an expert at it, so she shouldn't have expected that she, she knew about it. Um, you know, like I said, this is an issue that some women cannot get over, and I can respect that. And, you know, divorce or breaking up can be something that happens. But, you know, if you can take a step back and evaluate the situation, if you can get into therapy with somebody who can explain it to you, who can look at the situation with you, if you can get into group or not group therapy, but couples therapy with your husband and or boyfriend and talk to talk this out, you may find that you're able to give a little more compassion than when you first find out. Because a lot of women look at pornography basically as cheating. And mm-hmm. I understand where that comes from. But with true addiction, uh, you know, it's an illness and there's another thing going on there. So I was lucky with my wife. I was absolutely lucky with my wife. When I came out of the jail, uh, they told me after she bailed me out, they told me she was waiting in the car. I got in the car and I said, before you talk, don't talk. Before you start talking, I'm not going to fight you on a divorce. Uh, You can have the cars. You can have the house. You can have the kids. Uh, This is so far beyond anything you deserve. I'm not going to fight you on any of it. If you want a divorce, that's cool. And she said, I just have one question. Did it involve little kids? And I was like, oh, absolutely not. It was a it was a teenage girl that I I, you know thought was older. And she's Mm -hmm. like, "Okay, well, we know you've been sick for a while, you know, because she could tell I was going downhill. She could tell I was drinking too much. You know, I didn't I didn't look healthy. I wasn't acting healthy. Uh, It's just that the porn happened to be the thing that took me down. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, statistically, I probably should have driven my car into a house or something, Um, (laughs) you know, and 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 I, uh, you know, I I was very lucky because I don't think if she hadn't stood by my side, if she hadn't, I knew she judged me, but she didn't judge me to my face. You know, Mm -hmm. I know she took crap from other people and some of her friends who were like, I'd leave him right away. You know, she valued the family unit. She wanted to see if I could turn things around. I know if I hadn't done the hard work, if I hadn't, you know, turned things around, if I had started to relapse, um, she would have left. You know, I, I, yeah. I, knew, I knew what the deal was. She set boundaries, which is very important. And I followed those boundaries because staying married and staying in a family was a priority for me. Um, for guys who it's not, if they ignore their wives' boundaries, you know, Maybe she does have to leave. Maybe she does have to divorce him. But I do. I am a proponent of giving him a chance. Yeah. So say there's someone listening right now that has, um, say, a porn addiction. Uh, what was what w- would be a little tidbit of advice? Something that you could give them to leave this with? Something like whether it be peace of mind or advice to the road of recovery well here's the thing i was a porn addict for about 25 years and i managed it very well nobody knew i was a professional i was a pillar of my community i was not the kind of person people thought was a porn addict um based on you know stereotypes and Mm. i think that a lot of guys out there and even some women now fool themselves into thinking that they're not pornography addicts because they're not some kind of stereotype of a 19 year old guy in his mom's basement who's never kissed a girl in real life uh you know that that, that's not who porn addicts are 
Porn addicts mm-hmm. are every type of person. So you cannot say that you're a certain type of person who can't be a porn addict. The other thing I'd say is for 25 years, I managed this and it was only at the very end for a couple months that it got out of hand. I never would have been in those 25 years the kind of person who would have gone into chat rooms and done this kind of stuff. But my addiction got to that point where it was possible. And if it was possible to get to that point with me, it's possible to get to that point with you. So if you believe you have any level of addiction to pornography, get some professional help. And if you need to find uh, you know, a 12-step group or an internet forum or a list of uh, uh, therapists in your area, come to my website, which is recoveringpornaddict.com. There's a resources page there um, that can start getting you some help and start you know, exploring the fact that you do have a problem. Because if you have an addiction problem to pornography, I am proof of where it can go if you leave it unchecked. That's awesome, man. Is there anything else that you want to add to this episode? Uh, you know, like I said, like I said, just and for those people who are listening that don't have uh, pornography addiction, um, don't uh, stereotype those who do. You'd never be you'd be surprised who has it. Anybody can have porn addiction, just like any other kind of addiction. Uh, if you want to deal with somebody uh, effectively who has a porn addiction, number one, make sure that you keep things non-judgmental. They probably looked at stuff that you know, curls your fingernails, but don't judge them on it. And number two, keep things safe. The only way that people ever get help is if they feel safe. The only way people ever talk about it is if they feel safe. So um, regardless of what your personal feelings are about pornography, if, uh, if you run into somebody who is an addict, uh, just make them feel safe, make them feel listened to, and it's much more likely that they'll get some help. That's awesome, man. You have a really amazing story, and I'm glad that you came on today to share it. It definitely, I like whenever I hear stories like this, not just because I like to hear about people's trauma, but I like the fact that it gives me, especially if it's something that I haven't heard about, it gives me a new perspective to a lot of other things because I have a lot of friends and family that have different addictions. So yeah. whenever you, Look, I, I I wouldn't say look at every addiction the same, but whenever you can look at something like in your scenario and kind of understand the mindset behind it, then it yeah. almost makes understanding these other addictions a little bit easier. You know what I mean? Right. No, especially I mean, whenever it's someone that you that's close to. No, absolutely. My my wife and I you know, we like to go to the local casino maybe two or three times a year. And if I lose $50, oh, well, if I win $50, oh, well, um, I don't have that addiction gene when it comes to gambling, but I absolutely understand how it can exist. Yeah. Awesome. Well, go ahead and um, give us the title of your book again, um, your website and any social media outlets you have. If you have a podcast yourself, you can go ahead and promote it let people know where to find you and where they can reach out to you um it has been a pleasure having you on the show man well and i want to thank you for giving me the time darius a lot of people are still very squeamish about talking about pornography uh in general and if if we can't Mm. if we can't talk about pornography how are we ever going to talk about pornography addiction 
Um, yeah. So I want to thank of you course. there. Want to thank you there very much. Um, let people know, you know, if you have any questions, um, if you want to know how to get help, if you want to uh, read some of the stuff that I've written about recovery or about when I, uh, you know, was in my addiction, I have a, a website that I update daily. That is recoveringpornaddict.com. Again, recoveringpornaddict.com. Uh, the new book is called uh, He's a Porn Addict, Now What? an expert and a former porn addict answer your questions. And um, that's available on Amazon. You can also come to my site and check it out. Um, I don't do the social media thing anymore because I think it's a cesspool. Um, and, Fair enough. and it's uh, becoming all trollish. And I try to keep things positive in my life at this point. So, uh, you know, Facebook uh, doesn't need to be part of it. So, uh, yeah, come find me. You can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me at my website. That's where I'll answer questions. Uh, if people need any help or anything, you know, just drop me an email and uh, happy to lend a hand. So that, again, that's uh, recoveringpornaddict.com. Uh, that also has links to buy the book if you just want to go there instead of straight to Amazon. Awesome. Well, hey, thank you so much, Josh. It has been a pleasure. Um, I'll be in contact with you soon. All right. Thanks a lot, man. All right. Thank you, everybody. Put your head on my Shoulders